Well, a few weeks ago, I brought up Judah's King Ahaz to you as an illustration of empty religion, and I figured I'd pick on him again. You may recall how Ahaz was the one responsible for inviting the Assyrians into Israel's backyard. In one sense, this was a strategic move as Israel in the north was teaming up with Syria to invade Judah in the south. And they needed some help, someone to take the pressure off of Judah. So the king Ahaz invited the Assyrians to come help him and he bribed him with all of the gold and silver that was left in the temple. As a military move, this makes sense. But then you see Ahaz became enamored with the Assyrians. He started to favor them and their customs. Never mind the fact that they were extremely wicked and violent and immoral. Never mind that they were characterized by idolatry. Never mind that the Assyrians hated Israel and their God. Ahaz wanted to be like them. He wanted to rub shoulders with their king. He wanted to adopt their customs. And for Judah, this made no sense. The evil Assyrians were the villains in the story. Israel and Judah should have been teaming up against them. They were the bad guys who hated God and and God's people. Ahaz should have known that. And he should have known that the Assyrians favored him only because he gave them money and was favoring them. But that favor wouldn't last forever. Indeed, the Assyrians completely conquered the 10 northern tribes of Israel. They're the ones who deported the 10 northern tribes. And not too much longer after that, they would turn on Judah in the south as well. What did Ahaz expect? Inviting a wicked, evil superpower into their own backyard. There is a lesson in the story, however, of the folly of misplaced favor. It is doubly foolish for God's people to show favor and partiality to those who are wicked. I mean, for one, they hate God. They hate his ways. And in addition, they will quickly turn on God's people given the opportunity. God's people should never become enamored with the wicked of the world. They'll only be inviting ruin on themselves. I bring this up because we find a very similar lesson from our passage this morning in James chapter 2. You can turn there now to James 2. James is going to be addressing a similar issue, the folly of misplaced favoritism. He's likewise going to argue that it makes no sense for God's people to favor the wicked. Why would you ever show partiality to the villains of the story? They don't favor us. They hate our God. They will turn on us given the chance. It just makes no sense for God's people to show favoritism to God's enemies and become enamored by them. But there's a twist here in James chapter 2. The twist is that James is going to argue that the villains, in this case, at least in the case of the early church, were not the Assyrians. Rather, they were the rich. The rich are the villains of this story. Meanwhile, God's people are equated with the poor. Does that sound right? Can that be true? Does it at least get your attention? Well, let's find out what James really has to say in this passage for this morning, James 2, 5 through 7. Let's read that now. James 2, verse 5. He says, listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? 
Now, when you read this passage in isolation, it produces many questions. First, James says, God has chosen the poor of this world to inherit the kingdom. So does this mean only the poor can be saved? Are the rich excluded from God's kingdom? Is James teaching salvation by poverty? Is it unrighteous to be rich? He has some very strong words for the rich here. The rich are the bad guys. They're the ones oppressing these young Christians, dragging them into court, blaspheming the name of Christ. James simply has nothing good to say about the rich in this passage. So does it mean it is evil or immoral to be rich in God's eyes? Are all rich people the villains and the enemies of God's people? A lot of intriguing questions. We're going to need to answer all of these questions today because we want to understand and appreciate the lesson James has in this passage for us. To do this, though, we begin with the context. Because in reality, this passage does not exist in isolation, but it exists in a very specific context, which helps us know where James is going with all this. I'll remind you as we've been going through James verse by verse where we're at here. We just entered the context of, well, chapter 2, where James brings in a new subject. It has to do with the sin of partiality. The main concern, the main command for this whole passage is verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. That's where he said, my brethren, do not hold faith, your faith, in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. We discovered last week, it's not wrong to have favorites in life, favorite things, favorite people, but it is wrong when such favoritism leads to injustice or discrimination. Then you have the sin of partiality. God's a God of pure righteousness and justice, and the church should be the same. The church is a place where people from all nations and backgrounds come together as one, despite all their differences. Externals like skin color, social status, and gender mean nothing in the body of Christ when it comes to our value or our worth in God's eyes through Christ. We may have different roles, different functions, but we're equally loved in God's eyes because of Christ, through Christ in the church. And so the simple point is, shouldn't we treat one another with the same love and dignity and respect despite their external appearance? Basically, love your neighbors yourself, as we'll learn later. But sadly, though, this doesn't always happen. Unjust favoritism, discrimination, treating others unfairly, they still describe our society, and these various sins of partiality still rear their ugly heads in the church from time to time. And so James next gives us an example by way of contrast of what these sins of partiality can look like in the church. And that's where we found verses 2 through 4 from last week. You can look there again. He says in verse 2, For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothing, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty dirty clothes, and you, you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there. Or you sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Here James gives a contrast between two men entering the church 
one rich, one poor. Also contrasts how the church receives in response to these two men, showing favor and partiality to the rich man while dishonoring and really disrespecting the poor man. But that's not a reflection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So James levels a conviction against the church. Like, what have you done? Have you not made distinctions among yourselves? You've become judges with evil motives. And such discrimination always comes from evil motives, never righteous motives. Such favoritism is not right, not just, not fair, not loving. It's evil in God's eyes. It should have no place in the church. Plain and simple, showing this kind of favoritism, it's just inconsistent with holding on to faith in Christ, who instructs us to show real love to others, not partiality, not injustice. But James isn't finished. This lesson continues because this is, was back then, still today, such a big issue, such a big threat to the unity of the church that he's going to keep going and keep driving home why the sin of partiality is such a problem in the church. And that's where we come now to verses 5 through 7. So you see our passage, we're still in the same context, the sin of partiality. This sin takes many forms. Today, partiality along racial lines would be probably the big deal in our society, as it was in James's day. But he's concerned first and foremost with socioeconomic partiality. In other words, favoritism based on social status, your rank, your wealth. This is the divide between the rich and the poor, and the haves and the have-nots. This divide has always existed. It still exists, and it's still a problem, even in the church today. But it should not be. If the poor and the downtrodden cannot find refuge in the church of Christ, then they're truly without hope. So James is going to drive this point home. Starting in verse 5, he's going to further explain why this favoritism is so wrong. And he's going to show us why our partiality, especially toward the rich, is just not consistent with faith in Christ. And like I said before, it's a very intriguing passage. It begs a lot of questions, but it's an important passage because it's so real today. The issues are still so real. So let's further study now verses 5 through 7. We're going to see this corroborating evidence as to why favoritism still has no place in the church. Specifically, James gives us three reasons why partiality has no place in the church, especially toward the rich. Three reasons why partiality has no place in the church, especially toward the rich. Starting with this, this first reason, number one, Partiality is inconsistent with God's choice of the poor. God's choice of the poor. It's the first reason. And that's what he says in verse 5. Look again at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. James carries on now the same context. He's got a question though to his beloved brethren. He's talking to the church whom he loves. This is coming in love. 
But he asks a question and he expects a positive answer. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? The answer is yes. Yes, he did. James is actually making a very simple point in this verse. It's very simple. He's arguing, look, God has chosen the poor of this world to inherit his kingdom. Therefore, why would you discriminate against the poor? They're your brothers and sisters. They're beloved in God's eyes. So why would you not care for them and help them just as much as you would care for those and help those who are are lovely and rich and attractive in this world? The simple point is, if, if God has chosen them, why do you dishonor them? That's the point. That's it. It's, it's simple. And in fact, we could just leave it at that. We could be done and move on. The point is so simple. God favors. He's chosen the poor, so you should show no discrimination against them. But the challenge of verse 5, though, comes with all the questions this brings up, which we mentioned earlier. So we're not going to just speed through. Is James teaching like a form of salvation by poverty? What, what's, what's he saying here? Is he saying it's, it's virtuous to be poor in God's eyes, like it merits God's choice? Is that what he's saying? Now, keep in mind, the challenge of this passage is not just easily swept aside by, by saying, well, he's talking about those who are spiritually poor, because he's not. Now, it is true that Jesus did say in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And there he was talking about spiritual poverty, that only those who come to God empty and humble with nothing but faith will receive life. But James is not talking about spiritual poverty here, as, as convenient as that might be, you might say. The context makes it just too clear, especially given the contrast he's building between the rich man and the poor man. He's clearly talking about those who are materially rich versus those who are materially poor in this world. So if you're going to make sense of this verse, you have to deal with the fact that he's just plain and simple saying God has chosen the poor people of this world to inherit his kingdom. Now, before we keep explaining, you should know that some have taken what James says here and they've run off the deep end. You might recall several weeks ago, I introduced you to what's called the social gospel. Remember that? Well, related is what's called liberation theology. Have you heard of that? Probably not. And you never will, so I figured I might as well spend a few minutes on it here. But I'll just briefly introduce you to this to expand your horizons. Liberation theology arose in Latin America in the early 20th century. The vast majority of people were impoverished and oppressed by wealthy landowners and dictators. And so it made the people quite open to Marxist and socialist ideas, which were becoming very prominent at the time. This thinking made its way into the church and liberation theology was formed. Liberation theology defines the purpose and the mission of the church as liberation. But we're not talking liberation from sin and death. We're talking about liberation from poverty, oppression, and injustice. The the spiritual dimension of liberation from sin, you know, like salvation, that's downplayed or just outright absent from liberation theology. Rather, it's all about just helping the poor on earth 
become liberated. Accordingly, the mission of Jesus is completely reinterpreted to be one of social liberation, not spiritual liberation. Jesus didn't really come to bring eternal life. He came to bring justice and equity. And God's main concern for mankind is the lack of social, economic, and political justice for the poor and oppressed in society. And so he sent Jesus to fix those problems. And this becomes the church's mission as well. Liberation theology began as a movement to liberate the poor of this world. You can understand how it later spawned the black liberation movement in theology and the feminist liberation movement in theology in America. But there are a multitude of problems with this thinking, at least when it comes to theology. Now, of course, we've been learning from James that the church should very much be concerned with social issues. We learned we are to care for the orphan and the widow. We are to be a refuge for the poor and the needy. And we are to show no partiality or injustice. That's all obviously true. But you have to understand social liberation, while like we're not against it, it's just nowhere near as important as spiritual liberation. Like you're missing the main point. And this is ever clear in scripture. In fact, do you know why? In every society, in every nation, for all of human history, there's been oppression. Do you know why? It's because of the sin problem. So if you really want a perfect society, a cleaned up society, how about you deal with the sin problem first? And that's what Jesus really came to do. And indeed, his kingdom will be free from all injustice and all oppression. Why? Because sin will be removed. There will be no more sin. And so scripture is crystal clear that sin and Satan and death are our greatest problems. And Jesus came to deal with these. That's how you solve all other problems. He died on the cross and he rose from the dead, not merely as an example of liberation, but to actually atone for our sins, to purchase our forgiveness that we might be granted eternal life in that kingdom by faith and repentance. That's the real gospel. We, we can't sacrifice the real gospel for a social gospel. What matters most is liberation from sin and death. And then you'll find true peace with others, with the nations, with society when you come to peace with God. That's God's plan for the nations. We have a real gospel. It leads to a, a greater hope of a new heavens and a new earth populated by a new people who've been purchased by the Savior. That's the gospel. Well, now back to James 2. Whatever James is saying here in verse 5, one thing is clear. You can't twist it to mean that, that the gospel is, is simply about liberation from poverty and oppression. In fact, looking at verse 5, there's actually no promise for the poor of this world that they will be delivered from their poverty. He's not promising them riches. Rather, God has chosen them to be rich in what? In faith. That's it. I mean, they're made heirs of a better society, but it's not here on earth. It's a future coming kingdom. You see in verse 5, the hope given to the poor here is found entirely in the next world, not in this fallen world. But now I think it's time we start answering some of these questions and figure out what James is getting at here. 
Now, it should be clear, given the whole counsel of Scripture, that James is speaking generally, not comprehensively. He's treating the rich and poor as classes, as representative classes. Obviously, there are exceptions to the rule of thumb he's painting here. We know, for example, that not all the poor are saved, right? There's no salvation outside of faith in Christ. Not all the poor have faith in Christ. They're not all saved. That goes almost without saying. Also, not all the rich are condemned. There are many examples in Scripture, even in the church, of wealthy believers. We think of Joseph of Arimathea, Cornelius the Centurion, Achilla and Priscilla, and Lydia. Was not Jesus visited and worshipped in birth by these poor shepherds and rich magi? Salvation is open to all who believe, rich and poor. So first, you need to understand he's not speaking comprehensively. He's speaking generally. And second, James is speaking observationally. His statement here in verse 5 is just based on simple observation. As James looks around the state of the early church, it's just obvious. It is mostly populated by the poor and the downtrodden. And meanwhile, it is mostly the rich who are persecuting them and oppressing them. And this observation has pretty much held true for all church history, including today. The church has, generally speaking, mostly been populated by the poor of the world. And so all that's really left to do is to answer the question, why? Why is that? It it is true. Generally speaking, throughout all history, it's mostly been the poor who've entered the, the true church. Why is that? Well, the answer is not because it's more righteous to be poor. It's not. So sorry, the aesthetics have it wrong. Some have taken vows of poverty, thinking it would endear them to God and and gain them some sort of merit or favor, but it doesn't. You're no more righteous to be poor than rich. So how does this work? Well, it is true that, as James generally observes, the kingdom will mostly be populated by the poor of this world. Why is that? Let me give you two reasons. Two reasons why we would say God has chosen the poor. As he says, why is that? Reason number one, humanly speaking, the poor are more likely to be saved because the poor are already humbled. The poor are more likely to be saved because the poor are already humbled. And the word for poor here actually means to crouch or to cower like a beggar. And it came to refer to the beggar, the one who's been reduced to beg. They're so destitute, they have to beg. That's the poor person in James 2. They've been humbled by life circumstances and they have nothing left. But keep in mind, is not humility an essential requirement for true saving faith? It is. To come to Christ for salvation, a deep humility is required, a brokenness an end of self-reliance. You have to die to self. You have to realize that the ship of self is sinking. And you have to abandon ship and jump completely to the life raft of Christ. There's no trying to partially stay on board and keep one foot on board. You have to abandon ship and cling to Christ. That's your only hope. Accordingly, saving faith begins with this confession that you're, you're lost. You're condemned. You're guilty. You have to realize the ship is sinking. 
And you actually deserve to go down with the ship before a holy God. Meanwhile, you have nothing to offer, no merit, no righteousness. You see the raft of Christ. You don't deserve to be on that raft, and you have nothing to, to gain a ticket, to gain entrance. You have nothing to, to give, no righteousness of your own. Your only hope is to simply to, to call out to him for mercy and, and to beg for a spot on the raft. And the good news is God, in his grace, he's promised to never turn away such a cry for mercy. He simply, in his will, has promised to heed that cry for mercy, and he will gain entrance. But here's the question. Are you too proud to beg? Are you too proud to beg? Are you too proud to bow down to Christ and admit your need, your guilt, your helplessness, that you, you really are, and you've, you've been convicted a, a guilty sinner before a perfectly holy and righteous God. You're not perfectly righteous. That's what's needed to gain heaven, by the way. Just, just perfect righteousness. You, you don't even come close. Will you humble yourself and acknowledge that you've nothing to bring? You, you deserve a just judgment. That's required to have saving faith. This admission that you're lost and you're needy and just mercy. You beg for mercy. He hears that. But the thing is, it just so happens that, you know, most rich people, observationally speaking, they're, they're too proud to beg. They're too proud to beg. Materially, they don't beg for anything. They don't beg. They order. They command and people respond. That's what a lot of money gets you in life. You can have servants or whatever. But that's not how it works spiritually. Because spiritually, before God, even the rich are still bankrupt. In fact, we're all bankrupt. Before God, we are all spiritually destitute. No one's rich. But it's all too easy for the rich to be blinded by their wealth and really start to believe that they're actually better, that they are worthy, that they do deserve heaven. Look how, I mean, look how outstanding they are. They should get in. It's so hard for them to see their spiritual need. It's so easy for them to count on their own personal accomplishments and so the point is this, a greater humiliation is required. A greater humbling is required for the rich to arrive at the foot of the cross. They've got to travel a much further distance down to humble themselves, to bow down at the cross. But not so for the poor. Think of a destitute person. He's not rich. He's living paycheck to paycheck. No car, he rides the bus. No house, tiny apartment at best. Sometimes he just has to even beg for food. This person has nothing to boast of, no accomplishments to rely on. And this person, the point is, he has a much shorter distance to arrive at the foot of the cross. He's already been humbled by life. He already knows what it's like to be helpless and hopeless and needy. And it's just a shorter leap for those who are poor physically to realize they're poor spiritually and be saved. This does not mean that all who are poor are automatically saved or guaranteed salvation. No, there are many poor people who they don't have much, but they live for the little they have. They cling to the little wealth they have, and they're too rich for the kingdom. But the point we're making is that generally speaking, those who are materially bankrupt, they just seem to have an easier time confessing 
there's spiritual bankruptcy as well. They're not too proud to beg God for mercy. And these will be visited with salvation. They'll be made rich in faith, as James says, and given an inheritance. So that's the first reason why we would say the kingdom will be mostly populated by the poor. Humanly speaking, from a human perspective, the poor are more likely to be saved because they're already humbled by life. Second reason, from a divine perspective, the poor are more likely to be saved because God delights in showing off his power. Because God delights in showing off his power. You know, throughout history, the rich, the mighty, the powerful, the scholars have come together like at the Tower of Babel to oppose God, to make a name for themselves. But God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And of these proud, he delights in making his supremacy known. He does that by just knocking over the little towers of the mighty. He humbles them. He makes them low. And meanwhile, he exalts the humble. He lifts up the weak and the lowly and the have-nots. This is how God showcases his glory and his grace. Is this not the point that Paul made in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26 through 29? I'll read for you. He says, consider your calling, brethren. We're talking calling. That there were not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. Who did God call in his sovereign grace? Not many who were wise and mighty and noble. A few, just not many. Mostly, he's not called the rich and the powerful. They boast. They're arrogant. Instead, he is delighted to call and choose the foolish, the weak, and the despised. Again, this is still generally speaking, but God has chosen the have-nots to inherit his kingdom. Why? Not because they're any more righteous or worthy or deserving. They're not. They're just as guilty and just as deserving of his righteous judgment. But God delights in magnifying his glory and showing his power. And he does that by humbling the strong and exalting the weak. As God reverses the ways of this world, which exists in rebellion against him, he shows himself supreme and no one can boast. So I hope these two reasons just help a little explain more what James is saying here. Generally speaking, it's true. God has chosen the poor of this world to inherit his kingdom. This kingdom has been promised to all who love him, rich or poor, But it's just that mostly the poor who have not been blinded by the deceitfulness of riches will humble themselves and go to Christ and beg. So now that you have a a better understanding of verse 5, we can revisit the lesson. Because remember, the point still stands. The point is simple. Remember, this is the first reason why partiality 
has no place in the church. Overall, verse 5, that God has chosen the poor. So when you see a poor person come into the church, someone downtrodden, impoverished, they're already humbled by life. The point is this. Knowing God's general choice of the poor is not the last person we should discriminate against. Right? Instead, what you often find is that the hearts of such people are often ripe for harvest. You may not be able to offer them a million dollars and take away all their earthly troubles, but you can help them see the truth that they can be spiritually rich. Despite all their suffering in life, they still have a greater problem, and that is a spiritual bankruptcy. They have that too. And it's going to lead to an eternity of destitution, but they can be made rich in Christ by faith if they would turn to him and humble themselves. They will inherit an eternal kingdom. But you see, they will never hear this good news from you if you close your heart against them. Because what? Because they're different? Because they look different? Because they make you uncomfortable? They're not like you? The lesson is, is simple. But just take it to heart. Don't close your heart against the poor, the downtrodden, the needy. Just because they're not like you, they're not at your level or status, this partiality has no place in the church. And you may just find yourself discriminating against one whom God has chosen. And this is the first reason partiality has no place in the church. Partiality is inconsistent with God's choice of the poor. Let me give you a second reason now. Number two, partiality is inconsistent with the hostility of the rich. The hostility of the rich. Just what he says, verses six and seven. Let's let's read those again. Look at verse six. He says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? So think back to the illustration from verses 2 and 4. He's obviously evoking that imagery. A rich man, a poor man visit the church. Everyone fawns over the rich man while the poor man is ignored and disrespected. People surely think, And look what this rich guy can do for us. Meanwhile, the poor person is seen as just a a drain on our resources. We've already established that is wicked discrimination, which stems from wicked motives. The first reason is God's choice of the poor. The second reason, it just makes no sense to show that type of partiality and favor to the rich. It's just foolish. It's self-defeating. It's inconsistent, James says in these verses. Yes, again, he's speaking generally. There are obvious exceptions. Not all the rich are hostile and wicked like this. But typically, he says, showing partiality to the rich is just foolish because they happen to be the enemies of God and his people. And God's general choice of the poor has an inverse truth. Namely, that God has generally passed over the rich. 
Like we said before, they're typically proud and haughty and arrogant. They refuse to bow the knee to Christ. To the mighty and the noble and the wise, the word of the cross is what? It's foolishness to them. They reject the word. They lash out at God and his people. And so after all, just who are the ones, observationally speaking, who have been mostly responsible for persecuting God's people? Throughout all the history of the church, it's always the mighty and the rich, so it seems. You know, James is writing to these Jewish Christians in the early church, the first book of the New Testament written. These Jewish Christians start off in Jerusalem. They were forced to flee because of persecution. They lost many, their homes, their land, everything they had, either that or was taken from them. So you have these Jewish Christians now, and they've been scattered throughout the Roman Empire. James is writing to them. And they're still being oppressed. They're still impoverished. They have no land. And now they're doubly outsiders because they're Jews and Christians. And so to the rich and the mighty who believe the word of the cross, you know, this, this talk of this Jesus guy is just foolishness. So they're quick to oppress and lash out at these new Christians. And so does it make any sense to favor these people who hate you, to favor the rich and the mighty, and to show them partiality over the poor man? I mean, the poor man is, is more likely to become one of you. But have you forgotten that it's mostly the rich and the powerful who oppose God and oppress his people? That's what James is saying here in these verses. He's identifying the general hostility of the rich to God and his people. And he does so along three lines with three questions. Back in verse 6, three questions come to show the hostility of the rich to God's people. He says, first, verse 6, is it not the rich who oppress you? The word oppressed speaks of tyrannizing someone. The rich were taking advantage of the poor. Now, I'm sure you've never heard of that happening before. You can't imagine something like that ever happening, that the rich would take advantage of the poor. But from time to time, it actually happens. Sarcasm, yes. Anyway, the pool of illustrations is limitless, but not too long ago, Turing Turing Pharmaceuticals acquired the drug Daraprim. Daraprim, it's a 62-year-old drug used to treat a life-threatening parasitic infection. Used to sell for $13.50. But when they acquired the drug, they immediately raised the price to $750 per tablet. So if you had this rare parasite and you didn't want to die, now you owe a couple hundred thousand dollars a year just to live. See, the manipulation of drug prices by the rich for the poor, that's relatively new. The rich taking advantage of the poor, that's nothing new. In fact, in James 5, he's going to address specifically how the rich take advantage of the poor and their wickedness. He's going to lay out, look, just turn to chapter 5 of James, just flip the page. Think of verse 1 and verse 4 of James 5. He really lays into them. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries, which are coming upon you. And he goes on to speak of God's judgment upon them. And verse four, behold, 
the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. The rich failed to give their laborers a fair wage, but the poor were in a form of, of debt slavery. They couldn't really do anything about it. This is a, an extreme injustice to God. Again, there are exceptions. There are many godly, righteous men who have wealth, men and women who have wealth, of course, but you get the point at this point. And to make matters worse, back to chapter 2, James adds a second expression of hostility by the rich. The second question, is not the rich who personally drag you into court? Who personally drag you into court? You thought that was just a novel thing, but it's been going on forever. The rich and the powerful have always manipulated the strong arm of the law and bent it toward their will. For some people in humble circumstances... You get to the point where if you're going to live and eat, you either steal or borrow. And if not willing to steal, you need to borrow. But this is where often the rich take advantage of them through ruinous interest rates or just deadly late fees. And when the poor can't pay, they're taken to the courts and they're forced to give up whatever they have left. That's how they often lose homes and land. It still happens today where, you know, for example, countless farmers in middle America are, are just losing their land they've, they've had for a long time. Mega corporations buy them up and they can't compete in the courts. They have really no chance. You know, in James's day, before AD 70, the destruction of the temple, Jewish communities were largely allowed by the Romans to have their own laws and trials and courts. So how likely was it that a Jewish Christian would get a fair shake in a Jewish court back then? Not likely. And so it goes today more and more. Finally, as a third way, the rich are generally hostile to God and his people. James asks in verse 7, Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? This name is none other than Christ. So far, James has been highlighting the social an economic hostility of the rich toward the poor. But here he adds, it's not just that. It's also religious. They have a clearly religious hostility toward these Jewish Christians. They're making it clear that it wasn't just business. It was personal. In most cases, in this context, the wealthy was probably talking about wealthy Jews in these communities who hated these new Christian Jews who accepted Jesus as the Messiah And so they fostered a bitter religious hostility toward them. So they would add to all their oppression, slander and blasphemy and defamation, both of them and their Lord. To be expected, though, Christ himself promised just as much. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to bear his name. And so what do you say is going to happen to you? In John 15, verse 18 and 21, he said, if the world hates you, Well, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Christ's kingdom is not of this world, so it only makes sense that those who are of this world are going to hate all those who are of the kingdom and the king. It's always been that way. It always will be that way until the king returns. 
But here we see three ways the rich typically express their hostility toward God and his people. So now we can get to this second point, which again, it's, it's still a simple point. Why would you show partiality to them? The rich are, generally speaking, God's enemies. You may favor them like the Assyrians, but they're not going to return the favor. They will likely turn on you and, and oppress you and take advantage of you as soon as they get the chance. And all it's just incompatible with the faith to discriminate against the poor. And it's just plain inconsistent, ridiculous even, to favor the rich. That's what James is saying in this passage. Now, I want you to know, though, the solution to this problem is not reverse discrimination. That's not what he's saying here. That's how our society is right now trying to solve the issue of racial discrimination. Historically, white people have discriminated against ethnic minorities, So today it seems the solution our society is coming up with is is a reverse discrimination where now it's okay to to discriminate against white people, make them pay for a few hundred years at least. They're fair game for discrimination. That just reveals the sinful heart of man. The church is called to a higher road. And so James, he's not telling us to hate the rich or to discriminate against the rich or even the unbeliever. That's not the solution. He's telling us, look, don't give them undue favor at the expense of the poor. That's the lesson. But overall, we are to treat all people justly and fairly. And especially those who enter the church. The truth is this, that there's only level ground at the foot of the cross. No ethnicity is better in God's eyes. No social status, no gender. We all come equally unworthy, equally guilty. You must come equally empty, trusting in nothing but Christ alone. We're all spiritually bankrupt. We're all orphaned by sin. And so when you come to that realization and you come to Christ by faith, you're adopted into God's family just by pure grace. You have nothing to boast in. How could you then really discriminate against another brother or sister in that family? just makes no sense. Now you see what James is saying. If there is one community where the rich and the poor would get equal treatment, it should be the church. And so you need to see one another through the lens of Christ. And for those who enter this community of faith, it doesn't matter if they're rich or poor, black or white, male or female. If they've bowed the knee to Christ as their Lord and Savior, all you see is brother or sister. That's it. And you should treat one another as you would treat a brother or a sister. And this is how the world is going to see a supernatural harmony inside the church that they so desperately long for. They they desperately want to have. They'll never get it. They won't even come close to it because sin still reigns out there. But the only way to live a life of peace with others is to have made peace with God through the Prince of Peace. Let that be his church. Well, there's actually a third reason James gives, starting in verse 8, as to why partiality has no place in the church. But you know what I'm going to say. We'll save it for next time. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
You're a righteous God, a just and holy God. And we bow down to you. We confess your supremacy. We have nothing of which to boast before you. No, nothing of merit, nothing of concern, no righteousness, no favor. We are lost. Our, our ship is sinking. We have all fallen short of the glory of God and have sinned against you. And, and now we're, we're going down and we deserve to go down. But you've sent Christ to save, to give refuge to all who would call upon him and, and cast their cares upon his rock. First, Lord, I pray you reveal our sin to us. You show us our need. And as we behold the Messiah, the Savior who has come, I pray you humble us. You humble us, Lord. Show us what we need to come before him. Because salvation is not by riches, nor by poverty. It is simply by faith in that Christ alone. But we have to come to the end of ourselves to ever get there. And so humble us. For the rich and the poor who enter our church, it it doesn't matter. I pray you just humble them all the same. Whether it's going to take a greater humbling or not, just bring them to bow down at the, at the feet of Christ where they will find mercy and refuge and spiritual riches forever. It is a kingdom you have prepared for those who love you, rich or poor. And may we just understand that, preach and live out the true gospel and show others the fruit of that gospel, which is true love without discrimination, without partiality. It's the love of Christ. May this church and all the church be characterized by this love that the world may come to know Christ whom you have sent. It's in his name we pray. Amen.